I am thrilled at today's guest. Uh, Chris Wallace is a uh, is a legend. Uh, he's got a brand new show on uh, CNN and HBO Max streaming. Uh, you can catch that Sunday nights at seven o'clock. He's talking to everybody from George Clooney to James Patterson to Tyler Perry. Ashton Kutcher, Billy Crystal, AOC, I mean, incredible range of, of uh, celebrities and politicians and athletes and, and uh, trendsetters. Uh, his career is legendary, uh, starting out as a runner, uh, working for Walter Cronkite in 1960. I'm going to date you here, Chris, a little bit. 1964 Republican Convention, all the way through stints at ABC, uh, NBC, uh, Fox for the last 18 years. He's the only guy who's hosted two Sunday morning shows, three-time Emmy winner, Peabody Award winner. Welcome. Real pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Thank you so much. That is a really nice introduction. And and dating me, you're you're too late for that. I'm old. So yeah, I, you, you and me both. I, I, I've got to own it. You know, your your debut, your public uh, performance debut, did not go well in first grade. You were in your Christmas pageant. And you forgot the lines. I did did not owe well for a future in, in in what you did. How the hell do you know that? You know, we do my homework here. We're not, this ain't the amateur hour over here. You know, I'm, I'm talking to Chris Wallace. I have to get on my A game here, you know? Well, it, that is, <laughs> I'm going to suddenly get a little PTSD. <laughs> um, yeah, it's true. I was in first grade at Boys Latin in Chicago. And it even gets worse than that because my mother came to the show and she said, now, Chris, you, you, you want to practice? And I went, no, I know my line. I know my line. And uh, we got into the pageant, and I went up on my line in the Christmas pageant. So, you know, that that it, I, I, all I could do is go up from there. There you go, and you certainly have. I want to first talk about, you know, obviously we're coming off very pivotal election, and you are in a little bit of a different space than you've been in most of your career, uh, whereas you were not, you didn't have your anchor desk. Uh, how did it feel being in a little bit of a different space with with what's going on in the world? You, you're in a, a, a kind of a different different place. Well, I mean, I chose this, and and part of it was I like politics, I love to cover it, but I didn't, I I'm, didn't want it to be my full time job, you know. Like I'm sure you, I, I'm interested in a lot of different things, yeah. and I've been doing exclusively politics for 18 years on Fox News Sunday, and you know, I figured I had maybe one more move in my career. And I thought, you know, I'd, I'd kind of like to do a variety of things. Yes, politics, as you mentioned, where I've interviewed AOC and Pete Buttigieg and Rochelle Walensky on my new show, Who's Talking to Chris Wallace. But I've also talked to George Clooney and Tyler Perry and uh, Quentin Tarantino and, 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 you know, a variety of Shania Twain, a v- variety of other peoples. And I'm interested in all those. I'm interested in sports and entertainment and politics and culture and, you know, I... I you know, one of the things doing a Sunday show is, first of all, it's short. Now you say, well, gee, compared to uh, a morning show, it's actually really long. You have uh, 10 or 12 minutes for an interview, mm-hmm. but 10 or 12 minutes for the politician who's, uh, you know, got talking points in a script is is not that long. And I found I spent more time thinking about what I wasn't going to ask than what I was going to ask. And so now to have this show Yes, it's on CNN, and I love that, but it's also on on streaming on HBO Max every Friday, three episodes. Uh, I can do what you're doing on this podcast, which is is not have an interview, but a conversation, conversation yeah. and I love that. Yeah, you were you've talked very openly about when you had enough and you decided to leave Fox. Uh, that obviously you had been a bastion of what I'll call for, but you know my politics, I'm, uh, I'm a blue guy. Although I'm like you, I vote for the candidate. I vote Republican, I vote Democrat, even though I'm a registered Democrat. 
but you for a lot of years maintained a uh, an island of uh, what I'll call, I'm going to call it sanity. How hard was that for you? And I know you finally had enough with, with Tucker Carlson's uh, post-January 6th with his um, document, I don't know, I call it a documentary, his special primetime, whatever they were, uh, and some of the other things. They, they really, post-January 6th, you said that was enough. Um, all along, was it troubling to you what was going on at primetime for the network versus when you were trying to really, really be fair-sided or you just kind of put your head down and you did your thing? I, You know, I did, did my thing. And, and I will say Fox never got in the way. They never interfered. They never second-guessed me on, on a question I asked. They never uh, pushed back on any guest. And, you know, the, I know the name of this podcast is On Brand, my brand, and I didn't think of it as a brand, it's just the way I am. I'm an old-fashioned newsman, yeah. uh, you know, who prides himself on fairness and accuracy. And, and I have to tell you, it's an interesting thing, Donnie. I, I found, and, and I still find today that people will come up to me and they say, you know, I, I, I really admire you play it straight. You, you're not pushing an agenda. And while on the one hand, I like getting praised as much as the next guy, on the other hand, I find it kind of astonishing that you get praised for that because when I started at the Boston Globe, and I'll date myself here, 53 years ago in 1969, being fair, being accurate was like price it, of entry, you yeah. know, like uh, getting yeah. the facts right. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it, it was what kept you from getting fired. For that now to be a subject of praise is to me a kind of sad commentary on the state of the business. Yeah, state of the business, it, you said something fascinating on Bill Maher a couple, last week or the week before, it was a couple of weeks ago, where you basically pointed back um, to your dad's show, 60 Minutes, and said, in a weird way, that was kind of a little bit of embryo of what was to come, because it was the first instance where you could make money on news, and news had been a lost leader, and it opened the door for kind of going off script, off center, if you will, and what can we do to chase an audience? I thought that was an interesting kind of uh, parallel back. Yeah. I, I mean, let me make it clear. I'm not saying that 60 Minutes, I am not saying that 60 Minutes, whose journalism I admire enormously, of course, of course, of course. Is, is, is biased or is pushing an agenda or any of that. But, you know, and people know my father was Mike Wallace, but my stepfather was an executive at CBS News named Bill Leonard, who, in fact, was the president of CBS News and one of the guys who helped create 60 Minutes. And in those days, the Bill Paley days of, of, of CBS in the 60s, it was very much a sense that it was a public service. Yes. And it wasn't even expected that news, I mean, it was a question of how little money it would lose, not how much money it would make. And then you get 60 Minutes and it's a top 10 show and then it's a number one show. And suddenly people realized there's a lot of money to be made in news. And so... In a, in a complete unintended consequences way, I do think that it led to the idea of news as a profit maker, as as you say, chasing an audience. Um, and and I think very much to my father and stepfather's distress, uh, it, it ended up leading to some of the stuff we see today. Hey, were you surprised at the election results? I mean, it was, uh, uh, there was a lot of prediction. About it. Yeah, yeah, I was too. I, I have to be honest. I, I saw the red wave coming. I mean, and, know, I was, and, and I thought to, I thought to myself, well, gee, did I get it wrong? And, you know, I got to say, I mean, I did get it wrong, but I don't, I can't second guess myself and say there was something 
out there, we were missing. It, it really did seem not necessarily a red wave, but that it was going to be a decisive Republican victory, definitely in the House. And, you know, the Senate, maybe, I, I mean, I was kind of held off on that. But, yeah. Because I thought that seemed to be so much about individual races that yes. were within the margin of error. But everything seemed to be pointing to a, a sizable Republican victory. And, you know, it's one of the things that I, I love about the news is it doesn't follow, uh, you know, the predicted script. It, it, it It's reality. It, it evolves as it's go, going to evolve. And the thing you've got to do is just, is just cover it. Yeah, I, I in hindsight, what I missed that I, that I always I took my eye off the ball, and I forgot to really follow the passion. And yes, people in polls were saying inflation was you know the most important thing to them. And then you think about a woman's right to choose. You choose to think about democracy. You think about January sixth. And in the gut, I think people voted in their gut, and that overcame what traditionally would be well. The it's not the economy stupid anymore. Not with the times that we're going through. Uh, to me, the biggest surprise, I mean, I knew abortion after Dobbs was going to be a big issue. And 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 it clearly was during the summer. There did seem to be some indications in the polls that it was waning as an issue as we got out from June into October and then November. But what I really missed, and, and, and there's no question when you look at the results, that when Biden made his speech the last, I guess it was Friday before the Tuesday mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. election, about democracy being on the ballot and election denialism, um, I I didn't think that was going to catch the way it did. And I'm not saying it was just because of Biden's speech. Sure, yeah. But when you look at the election denial, denialists who lost for governor, especially for secretary of state, uh, I, I think people, and it didn't show up to a large degree in the polls, no, I think people really felt, you know, we're, we're not going down this rabbit hole. Uh, we got issues that we care about. But we're not going to try to do anything to weaken our democracy. And frankly, that's pretty encouraging. I said last week on Morning Joy, it was a referendum on crazy as opposed to a referendum on, on the economy. And it was really a test of who we are. Forget the politicians. What was so scary was you said, okay, are a majority of these people, are the majority of who we are going to say this stuff is okay? And if that's the case... We're fucked. I mean, because that's what the pot, that's, that's the majority. And the majority did not say that. Not an overwhelming majority. A majority did go down the saner route. And uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch Donald Trump now uh, as he burns the house down. I believe that he's certainly not going to get the nomination, but I don't think he's going away. I think he's going to end up running as an independent. And I think his attitude is, I'm going to take the house down. I, I, people keep saying the party's moving away from him, which they obviously are. You can only lose so many times and they, they understand that. But yet he's not going to go away. I mean, I've known him for 20 years um, and he is, a, he is addicted to relevancy. His biggest fear is being irrelevant. And I don't see him disappearing. Well, let me ask you a question about that, though, Donnie. You say his biggest fear is irrelevancy. Isn't his biggest fear losing? And could he, uh, you know, there's a there's a point, even though he's gotten in, that a year from now he could get out. Do you really think he can he can stand losing, going to Iowa, going to New Hampshire and getting, and I'm not saying he's going to. He, he might win. There's a big part of the base that still supports him. But do you think he could stand to be a a 
two-time loser? Well, he's already been, you could say, a three-time loser. And, and if you go back to 2018, 2020, 2022, um, I mean, he well, lost. his name wasn't on the ballot. But but he lost. It, it wasn't 20, but not in 18 or 20. Okay. Um, his name wasn't, but uh, he lost the House. He lost the Senate. Uh, his candidates this time around all lost. I mean, it was it was a stinging. To your point, his father taught him that there are two types of people in life. There are killers and losers. And obviously, he doesn't want to be a loser. But I still think in his own twist mind he can say i'm still controlling the game even if i'm you know where he still is the kingmaker appointment i don't, I just don't see him disappearing i don't i don't see that happening i see him the, getting angrier and angrier going further and further down a rabbit hole this is not a sane guy this is a you let's let's drift into to, to some of your great career moments which was uh moderating two of the debates particularly what was one of your great challenges of all time and and I thought you did a great job. It, it, it was the famous Trump debate, the last one with him and uh, Biden, where he was just just wouldn't shut up, wouldn't stop interrupting. And as you're sitting there, what's going through your mind as as he's going off the rails? You've got this job to do there, and do you, do you remember a moment where you something you said to yourself during it, where it was like that just sticks now back in your head? Oh yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is that the 2016 debate between Trump and Hillary Clinton went so well. Yes. And in a really polarized year where, you know, the, the, my predecessors and the, the two previous uh, debates had gotten, you know, you're too far one way or yes. other. Or yes. not. I had I'd gotten kind of universally good reviews. So I had never watched it because, you know, when something's good and it's good in my head, I don't want to watch there. it. Yeah, I, yeah. I would rather uh, have the memory. But I did watch it before the debate. And one of the things that I noticed was that there were points where they engaged, but there were also points when it was like parallel news conferences, when they were just giving separate answers, and they really weren't talking to each other. So one of the things I thought going into the, the 2020 debate was I want more engagement. So the debate starts and Biden can't get a word out without Trump interrupting him. My initial reaction was, this is great. This yeah. is engagement. This sure. is a debate. And then about five minutes later, I went, oh, my God, this is a train wreck. And, uh, you know, I at various points, I tried to stop the, the, the president. And we had somebody at Fox who, who um, monitor it, monitored it. Uh, Trump interrupted Biden or me. 145 times <laughs> in 90 minutes, which is pretty hard. Yeah, it's hard That's to more do. Than one a minute. You got to work at that. Yeah. And and so in any case, you know, at various points, and at about 45 minutes in, I um, I did a timeout and said, you know, this really isn't helping. Good for America. It's not the debate they deserve. And you know, it didn't make any difference. And and I honestly believe that there's nothing I could have done. But I will I will remember there was one point when the director for the Commission on Presidential Debates. Uh, is, you know, is talking in my ear. Nobody can hear it except me. And he's saying, stop Trump from, from interrupting so much. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if I had a button that I could push that would be a trap door and he would disappear, but short of that, there's nothing I could do. Uh, you know, it was a train wreck. Here's the only thing that I've kind of consoled myself with. In the end, what's a debate? It's an opportunity for the voters to, to look at the two yes, candidates, yeah, yeah. do comparison shopping and make a decision and I think it was actually a very consequential debate because uh, of the way Trump acted. Yeah, the people saw the product that they were getting. I always, when I'm always starting to watch the debate at the beginning, and it's you sitting there or another one of the anchors, I'm always, 
I get nervous for you. Because that's a really, really, really big deal. And I, I know you said, I read somewhere where you said each of the debates, you just said, if I could just, you said, you prayed to God or whatever, you said, if I could just get through this, just get me through these, these this 90 minutes and I won't ask for anything else. That's really pretty overwhelming to be sitting in that chair and, and you're not controlling the fate of the world, but you got to get that right. You got to get that right. Well, oddly enough, the second debate, which was a disaster, I felt pretty good because I'd done a debate uh, it, in 2016, the first presidential, and we're not talking about primaries, we're talking about the debate, yeah. final, final election debate, presidential yes. debates, the candidate for the Republican and the Democrat, 80 million people watching. The, I did the third debate in 16. It was 20 days before the election. One of these people is going to be the next president. There were times that I've done everything. I mean, I've interviewed kings. I've done, uh, you know, uh, uh, primary debates, all kinds of stuff, presidential news conferences. I have to say there were times when the the stress and the anxiety was just like a wave that overwhelmed me. I, I was, and when the debate started, you're exactly right. Just before the debate, I was standing off, just off stage in the wing. And I looked up and I said, dear Lord, if you just get me through the next 90 minutes, I will never ask you for anything ever again. And I sat down in my seat and trying to kind of collect myself. And, you know, the debate starts and I keep hearing this voice for about three or four minutes asking questions. And I'm like, who the hell is that? And it was me. It was like an <laughs> out of body experience. But then you sort of settle in and you realize I got these two people. They're not leaving me for 90 minutes, no matter what I do. I, you know, I'm going to get the opportunity to help America uh, pick between these two people. And I loved it. I had a great time so that when the debate, the first 2016 debate ended, I went back to that same spot where I had said my prayer before. And I said, dear Lord, I know what I said 90 minutes before, but could I have another debate in four years? <laughs> right. So, which, which only proves, be careful what you pray for. Before we get to the show, I want to talk a little bit about your transition. You decide to leave, which was a bold move, to this big, new, exciting venture, CNN Plus. My good friend, Jeff Zucker, I'm sure was very seductive in trying to get you to come over. And, it was. And, and then, oops, there was an oops. Take me through a little inside baseball about the process of them killing CNN Plus, but then you actually ending up in a bigger perch. So it ended up being serendipitous for you. Yeah, well, so I didn't know Jeff Zucker that well, but I, I was intrigued by the CNN Plus. And it was an interesting thing. I had started listening to podcasts, and there was something about the, the length of it, the re relaxation of it, that it could be a conversation, that you weren't sitting there with with a stage manager going, you know, three minutes left, two minutes left. So so that just like we're doing here, the yeah. conversation goes where it goes. So I was really intrigued by that. So I signed up with him and I remember I was uh, I was writing questions for my first sort of test show. So a show we were gonna do, but just to get a feel for it and we were gonna tape it that day. And and I'm very busy at my computer writing questions. And someone from my staff comes in and says, uh, Chris, have you been looking at the internet, at, you know, at email? And I went, no. I said, well, you might want to do that. And uh, and it was Jeff Zucker uh, saying he was resigning. So <laughs> that was that was a shock. In any case, but the CNN venture went on. And we I had worked January, February, March. We were going to start at the last, I think, the 29th of March doing a bunch of interviews, getting them in the bank, 
all excited. And we launch and we're feeling pretty good about it, about the product. And the next week, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery takes over and Chris Lick, you know, and David Zaslav, they kill CNN Plus. Right. You know, so I'm in a situation, Donnie, where I had some very smart people who said, you know, we're saying a week before, this is the wave of the future. People are debundling, linear is failing, the answer is streaming. And then the next week it was, no, streaming is a very bad idea and yeah. we, shouldn't, we shouldn't do that. And, and, you know, the difference was the first week, one guy, one set of guys were my bosses. The next week, another set of guys were my That's bosses. That's funny. Chris Licht is a buddy of mine also, and, and so is David. You're, you're, you got some good people there. All, all, all the above, very, as you said, very, very, very smart people. When you're preparing for a show, and I listed some of the guests, and okay, let's say you, you're talking to Mark Cuban. Take me through the Chris Wallace. When I'm doing the interview with you, I do a lot of reading. I have a few areas where I want to go. I know where I want to start. I kind of know where I want to finish. But then I'm listening. And I, I, the road, I drift on the roadmap. When you're, when, you're doing an, an, when you're doing a TV thing, when you're throwing to clips and you're throwing to things, you don't have that freedom. So how do you stay on course, but yet leave it really open for that Listening, to your point, make it a conversation, not an interview. Well, the answer is both. I mean, I have found that, you know, I really prepare and I will write out, uh, you know, generally our who's talking to Chris Wallace is about a half an hour, 35 minutes, whatever. And and I will write out 35 minutes worth of questions. But having said that, it's it's just a kind of blueprint but that isn't necessarily how i'm going to build the building and the building is going to evolve and you know you're exactly right if 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 the guest you ask a question that you planned and the guest takes it in a different direction the worst thing you can do is say well that's interesting but and yeah. then go back to your to your list of questions you you go with the flow and and but i do think being prepared is and and having a plan is you know, is the right way to go. I mean, I, it, it depends, you know, there's no right way to go. I mean, different people do it different ways, but I, I couldn't do it just coming there and sitting and not having a, a plan that I'm going to work from. Who do we have coming up? Well, uh, this, our last show is as, as you air this, our last show is this Friday. Uh, and we have Anita Hill, Dion Warwick and the King, of, uh, of of snowboarding and uh, uh, Tony Hawk and you, and I have to tell you that's what we call range, um, that's what we call range in the business yes <laughs> yeah skateboarding I was thinking it wasn't snowboarding skateboarding yeah. yes and I mean look I've had George Clooney AOC Tyler Perry uh, Alex Rodriguez Quentin Tarantino uh, Pete Buttigieg and that's what I love because that's that's and 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 I love the fact you know this is a in a sense, it's kind of groundbreaking because it's the only show I know that is both exists on streaming on HBO yes. Max, uh, the full uncut interviews. And then we take the best parts of those interviews and compile an hour, seven o'clock uh, e Eastern Sunday nights on CNN. So it lives both on cable and on streaming. It's really the only, you know, you've talked about how your inspiration was a little Charlie Rose, uh, a little bit Larry King. There's, it's really the only interview show of its kind 
anywhere now in long format it, it's it you you would think oh that's 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 a big staple of tv but you kind of brought it back and it kind of drifted away that's the most amazing thing you're exactly right as long as i've been watching tv you know and let's include my father in there as well there have been interview shows and and david suskind and you sure know, you could go on and on there have been interview shows and and interestingly enough when i met with Jeff Zucker in November of, of 21, just a little over a year ago. Uh, he, and he was basically pretty open. What do you want to do at, at CNN Plus? And I said, well, Charlie Rose meets Larry King. And that was my elevator pitch. And he went, boom, that's it. Got yeah, it. Yeah. I, I love it. Yeah. And that was all I had to say. And, uh, you know, it, it, it just seems to me it's, it's such a fascinating and, you know, it's why podcasts are, I think, so popular. People people love the idea of being in a room with two interesting people and, you know, being the third uh, in the third chair at the table and being able to share in, in their experiences and and uh, and their ideas about things. And so I'm, I'm delighted that I'm filling a hole. And uh, I have to say the show's catching on. We uh we're pre-taping this. I probably shouldn't say that, but right. the last week we had by far our our best ratings. We had AOC and Henry Winkler. That's great. And uh, I, people are finding. Yeah, I love the range. I love it, and it takes time. It takes time, but the, the reviews are great. The numbers are great, and it, it's exciting. I think one guest that I doubt you'll get on, but probably I think you're one of your most famous interviews was with Putin. Uh, you talk about sitting across mm. from a steely blue eyes. Anybody who's ever met him always talks about the eyes and how there's this distant coldness there, darkness there. Give me some insight into, into the Putin interview. Well, I interviewed him in 2018. 18, 18, yeah. Yeah, and it was right after the, I mean, literally an hour after the Trump-Putin summit in Helsinki. And I was the only American he'd agreed to do an interview with. And we'd been given half an hour. We did it in the Russian embassy in Helsinki, and which was kind of great because it was the old Soviet embassy. There was a hammer and sickle over the entrance, and there were these big uh, Kremlin security guards, big guys in cheap suits uh, all around. And he comes in. And if you've ever noticed his, his kind of natural affect, is that he kind of sits slouched in a chair like the disruptive student in the, yeah, in the back of the that, room, yes. the disinterested student. And so I was asking about the summit, and he's kind of going on and on, and, and frankly, not very interesting and apparently not very interested. And so then, and, I, and I'd blown like five minutes asking what happened at the summit. And then I thought, well, i got to get him into this. So I, I, I'm a big believer in props. And three days before... The, uh, the Mueller team at the Justice Department had uh, indicted 12 members of Russian military intelligence, what's called the GRU, for their involvement in the election. So I said, you know, you've always said, and, and one of the things I believe you talk about interviews is take away some, something that somebody has said so you don't have to go through that again. I said, you've always said when people have asked you in the past about interference, well, there's private individuals and you don't have control over it. We believe that. But in any case, I said, well, here's an indictment. And I literally handed him the indictment, which I had had printed up, of 12 members of Russian military intelligence. And I had memorized, you know, it was unit 23104 and 45678. 
And, and they're saying Russian military intelligence under your command was involved in interfering in the 2016 election. And I handed it to him and he kind of brushed it away, like don't even put it, uh, you know, I'm not gonna touch that damn thing. But he suddenly sits up in his seat and, you know, no longer is disinterested. And I get the full Putin glare in the eyes. Just these, just these icy, penetrating blue eyes. And from then on, Donnie, I have it. Yeah. And for the next 25 minutes, we went on and on. And it was really a fascinating interview about the NATO engagement. I, I got a real sense. You know, I wasn't surprised about Ukraine because th- his grievance about the West expanding east with NATO was very obvious there. We talked about the uh, election. I was about five minutes from the end of my allotted time, and I had a great interview, but I had one more question planned, and I thought, yeah, what the hell, I'll ask it. So I said, uh, Mr. President, why is it that so many people who oppose you end up dead? And, <laughs> and uh, uh, my wife, who was in the, the, the another room, but we're sort of our control room in front of the monitor said there was a Russian who said, security oh, sh- oh, shit. Right. guy right, right over her shoulder who started swearing in Russian. Right. She didn't know Russian, but could tell it was a swear word. And I loved his answer. He said, you know, we all have our domestic problems. I mean, was Kennedy <laughs> killed in Russia or the United States? Was Martin Luther King killed in Russia? So, and, the, and then the postscript to this story is that I had planned a vacation even before I knew I was going to get the interview, I knew I was going to go cover the summit. So I was going to take my wife right after this interview to Russia. So we indeed the next day got on a, got on a a shuttle, you know, a regular, regularly scheduled plane. And we flew to St. Petersburg and Lorraine, my wife was a little bit uneasy about this. And, 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 you know, we'd be driving to go to one of the great, palaces outside St. Petersburg, and suddenly the, our car would stop in a traffic jam, and I'd whisper to Lorraine, this is where the head happens, which she did not <laughs> find particularly amusing. That's very, very, very funny. Um, so you touched on earlier, the name of this show is On Brand. So what's the Chris Wallace brand? Well, I like to think the Chris Wallace brand is, you know, playing it straight, being old, it's kind of old-fashioned, offering uh, you know, treating it. They somebody once said about uh, about uh, Vince Lombardi. They asked one of his players, uh, "Does he discriminate? Uh, you know, play favorites?" And he said, "No, we treat them all like do- he treats us all like dogs." Right. And that's my feeling is, you know, I'm, I've, I I want to be the cop on the beat and just keep everybody honest. And whether it's politicians, whether it's talking to to uh, movie stars, not only about you know the the movies and the successes they've had, but also about controversies they may have had. Um, just just play it straight and and uh, serve only one person, the audience. I'm you know I'm not there to please the Republicans or the Democrats or the agent for the for the movie star. I'm there to to provide an interesting experience for the audience. You've obviously interviewed pres- presidents, heads of state, the, the 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 leaders of the leaders. Any when you said ah, oh, I how did I not ask that question after the interview where you just said this was an opportunity to do x and you missed it yeah i mean i i, I can't as, as you're asking me that i can't Im- immediately think of one of those but i've absolutely at times um had that thought you know gee i missed that opportunity i should have followed up on that and one of the things that was is was particularly frustrating when i was doing uh fox news sunday is that sometimes a newsmaker would go on two or three shows 
And one of the things that I would look for the next day or maybe even that afternoon was, did somebody else ask a question and get a news bit that I didn't get? You know, and that that would upset me. You know, I would think, uh, gee, why didn't I have the wit to ask that question? And the answer is, and I'm somebody's better or comes up with an idea than you did. And, you, you know, you try to learn from it. Chris, I, I was really looking forward to this. Such a pleasure. I, I've admired your work. I've been, been a member of the audience for so much you've done over the years. Thanks for taking the time. The show is Who's Talking to Chris Wallace? It's uh, on- Just please don't say that you grew up watching me. Okay. No, I'm we're, I'm not that far behind you. So <laughs> I, wish I, I, wish, I wish I could take that route. The show is Who's Talking to Chris Wallace? It's on Friday nights, HBO streaming, Sunday nights uh, on CNN. I almost said CNN Plus on CNN. Thank you for your time, sir. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Donnick. I, uh, thank you very much for having me. Hope you enjoyed my interview with Chris Wallace. Uh, I certainly did. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, any place else. We'll be back Tuesday with our Brands of the Week, and have a great week and stay safe.